0: Well, we often hear C.S. Lewis quoted uh, in this place, and for good reason. He's a very profound and thoughtful thinker of Christian life. And of course, I particularly uh, am fond of quoting his Scrutate letters. And here is yet another of his uh, observations vis-a-vis the, the story of Scrutate, the the devil, uh, and his counsel to his nephew, Wormwood. And he's of course, counseling him concerning the tempting of Christians in their Christian life. Quote, If your patient, a Christian, can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attacked, attached to some party within it. I don't mean on real doctrine issues about those the more lukewarm be he, he is the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between the two. And you can see the twinkle in his eyes. Many have uh, taken this passage from uh, Lewis, and they've made arguments that Lewis was not a a real churchman, if you will. Uh, They look at Lewis, especially now, as people are beginning to second-think what is described as evangelicalism and its tendency towards lukewarmness relative to its doctrinal commitments, um, it, it will look at a passage like this sometimes and think of Lewis as someone who's, who's willing to compromise, who's, who speaks to a populist Christianity, but, but is not really a, a man of the church, a man of, of, of high doctrinal convictions. In other words, a Lewis who might have set the way for a church to distinguish somewhat artificially between, say, the doctrines that are not essential versus the doctrines that are. Now, there's a lot I would love to do to unpack all that. Um, There's a whole other way of conceiving that story. Um, There are doctrines that are essential, and then there are doctrines that are essential, if they're doctrines at all, that come from God. But there are some doctrines applied differently, uh, and not therefore, essential for some things of the Christian life, whereas there are other doctors' doctrines applied differently that are you can see where this might go. But my particular interest here is in what he 's really trying to say he 's he 's warning us vis a vis this allegorical story that that um, that disunity is a very, very, very dangerous. And that Satan would like nothing more than to see it. It's particularly interesting, especially those who would take that spin from Lewis, that, well, become a mission church in our denomination. A member of the organizing commission, in other words, to become an organized church, uh, shall require communicant members of the mission church present to enter into covenant by answering the following question affirmatively. Do you, in reliance on God for strength, solemnly promise and covenant, that you will walk together as a particular, that is, organized church, on the principles of faith and order, and that you will be zealous and faithful in maintaining the purity and peace of the whole body? It's a strange thing because so many today would argue that it's exactly the organized church That's the problem with respect to Christian unity. And yet here, it's the very focus and the purpose of the Christian community organized. As a means towards maintaining peace and purity. To then join a church. Every one of you, if you've joined a church already, or if you're thinking about joining a church, we're quite aware that there are a lot of people who would would say to you, and maybe you're still wrestling it with yourself, I certainly did, for many years of my life as a Christian, this idea that the church really isn't essential to the gospel, and membership is one of these oppressive things you just ought to avoid. And especially in this narrative today, it's something that tends to create disunity among us. And so isn't it odd that, that when we join the church, the final question is, do you, dot, 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 promise to study the church's purity, and peace. And then if you are nominated, elected, and willing to become a pastor or an elder in said church, the question will be asked you. The vow will be taken. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? purity and peace are they oxymorons are they related i mean what does it mean that we here ascribe to the organized church to the church that has a governing community you know body a shepherding community and even that holds to things like membership that at the very core of what these three aspects ...of church or about, it's whittled right down to these two words. The passion, the zealousness, the goal of peace and purity. I would say to you that if you understand what I think Paul is saying here in this text today, if you read it in the context that we've been preaching through Philippians... It's peace and purity that Paul would lose his job for. It's peace and purity that Paul would die for. It's peace and purity that is truly at the core of his mission, essential to that mission. Even in a manner that you can't have peace without purity and purity without peace. In fact, it's it's a purity of devotion to Christ that is at the very core of how we would have unity. And it's the fact that in the Gospel, I mean, in the letter of Philippians, that that's been the problem, that this devotion to Christ has not been pure and singular. It's been diluted, it's been sinked into other passions and zealousness zealousness that, that began to corrupt and pollute the purity and the sincerity of just pure devotion to Christ insofar as it gets to the matters of church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is such a, an amazing thing. We live in a world that that's, uh, I often feel, and we felt it from the day we started this community, uh, that we are swimming upstream. And we find ourselves so often at these moments like this today where we feel like we're saying the very things that everyone around us says would produce the opposite of what we are being told that it will produce. To organize churches. To join a church. do even have governors, if you will, shepherds, to watch over the flock of God. All that organization stuff. That's the problem. And yet Paul here will argue just the opposite. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, for we'll need his, his grace, because we swim and we drink a soup and we breathe the air that, in many ways, doesn't quite make sense of this. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask, we ask that you would show yourself to us, that we would see Jesus and we would hear his words, and that we would understand uh, what's the big deal here. Why this passage stuck in the middle of this otherwise amazing book? Why take the time to to call out to people who need to be reconciled? Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the passage is neatly divided into two parts by virtue of their two exhortations. You'll have um, verse 1, the the exhortation or the command is stand firm. It concerns, you'll see, a purity of devotion. Stand firm in this purity of devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it pertains to your life and your spirituality and your church, Philippians. Stand firm in that. And then verse 2, it begins with be of one mind. Be together on what you stand firm on. It's applied to the whole congregation and then specifically in verse 2 and 3 to, to two specific people in that congregation. And it concerns peace. Purity and peace right here in front of us. Now what's important again is that these two exhortations are illustrated uh, in terms of the importance of them or illustrated. If, if illustrated by the mere fact that Paul here repeats in exact language by these two exhortations two separate sections that we've read thus far that is pretty much sums up the whole of the Philippian argument in other words he repeats this whole thing uh, while the two sections of the letter take up the items one and two before it am I making sense? Let me be more specific. As concerning then, of course, chapter 2, verse 1 and 16, you see this exhortation regarding their purity and this single-minded devotion to Christ, the obsession as we used to call it, or we did call it at that time. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, we hear him describe in great length uh, the concern he has for unity. And what's interesting here is that then Paul will use the words that introduce those whole sections here in this very short three-sentence exhortations. To stand firm and to be of one mind. And so this present appeals, appeal brings closure, if you will, um, to something that's very deep and he has spent a lot of time on in this book. So it's incredibly important to Paul, my point with that. And so let's look at verse 1, first of all. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This first appeal in verse 1 is directed towards the whole community, noticely. Um, It's it's remembering, again, something that he's already said. I'm going to read it for you now. In chapter 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This corresponds to something he said in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, what you're getting here is a bit of the context that helps you understand that already, well, what, does it mean? what did it mean to stand firm for Paul back in chapter 3? Well, what it meant was that he had to let go of some things that he was very passionate about before. That's interesting, isn't it? It meant here that, that, that this unity was being compromised, as we saw in chapter 2, by those who were not following Christ and being of the same mind, because they were holding on to their own various other passions, identities, loyalties, whatever you might say. And making those passions, identities, loyalties, etc. become more important than their loyalty to Christ and, therefore, by consequence, to the body of Christ. That's crucial. For again, in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by that manner of life? Well, he explains it then in two and three chapters. A manner of life which makes Christ your holy obsession. A manner of life which puts the first things of Christ and his gospel mission to the world, which Paul describes later as the great prize of the resurrection of the dead and the citizenship of heaven that we want to bring to the world, that that is the prize, the obsession of every Christian vocation ultimately. So to stand firm there means to stand firm in the purity of the gospel. It's related to this ultimate prize concerning the hope of the gospel, not letting anything else dissuade you. You know, if you were a and again, I think especially those of you who lead teams or or have leadership roles, but anyone can understand what I'm saying, but if you're the leader of a team or if you're the leader of a corporation, or if you're the you know, what's really important is that you have to as you the leader it's crucial that a good leader understands what the prize is. What 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 are we here to do? You know, and um, and you can even see how this is played out in culture with respect to Christianity. Sometimes, you know, if you're a I don't know a, 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 the 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 manager of a Chick Fil A, we saw this once. Is your your purpose is to sell chickens or eat chick? What, what is, don't eat eat chickens? Isn't that what it says? The cow, you know, what, is what does that say? Eat more chicken. There you go. Well, that's, the, that's clearly the brand. That's what Chick-fil-A is all about. Eat more chicken. You can pretty much summarize it. And this doesn't discriminate. Now, it's true that Truett Cathy and his son and others are, and have, have, have tried to organize and have tried to, to build this business as Christians and have done amazing and beautiful things. And I think true to Catholic Especially is an amazing example of what it means to be a Christian uh, leader in a corporate and non-secular context. But you remember a couple of years ago, uh, their their vision got a little a little bit uh, mixed up a little bit, uh, where they got very involved in a political controversy, albeit about an issue that 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 they believed had Christian ramifications, but somehow that family and that idea became a corporate brand for just a moment and it wasn't to eat chickens anymore it was to become a church and they said that they kind of lost hold it we're not a church here we're not here to discriminate we're not here to, to to we're here to offer chickens to everyone we're not to be political advocates for this this issue that was going on in their in their situation and they had to actually take that back and they did publicly and say, We're, we welcome all people of all denominations, if you will, of people lives. But see, what did he do? He understood that Chick-fil-A, the business of Chick-fil-A is to sell chickens. And everything they do is to make that environment of contact where they can do that. If you're, the, I was talking to one of you, you know who you are the other day. And if you're, if you're involved in, say, a medical field. And you're a Christian, but you have, as a boss, you have to be there for every employee. You're not there just for Christian employees. And so you have to be careful to navigate what you do, to be careful that you don't compromise the purpose of a hospital, which was to bring health and well-being to all people of all faiths and none, even as to not compromise my Christian values. Same thing if I were the governor, if I were the mayor, if I were the president, you name it. What's my prize? What's the goal? And see, Paul is here saying that, ironically, perhaps worse than those of other institutions, the church was losing sight of what their goal was. It's to make Christians. It's to make and enable the gospel, the hope of the gospel, to go into everyone's life that they meet. And that hope is the resurrection of the dead and the citizenry in heaven. And so to do that, how might they, without compromising their citizenship, without compromising their a family identity, his education, his Roman citizenship, remember all those things he laid, I'm, I'm explicating this passage I just read, all those things he laid aside? He didn't mean that he, 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 he was no longer Roman or no longer Hebrew. He didn't even mean that those things were bad things. Later in in chapter 9 of Romans, he's going to say how much he loves and cherishes those things, actually, as a Jew. But he was willing to lay it aside. He was willing to do what he had said that Christ was willing to do, which was to lay aside this exalted place of divinity and become a man. So that he might get into the empathetic relationship of the world. And in an empathy with the world that he might therefore become what Paul would later say about himself, a Greek to the Greek and a Jew to the Jew. This issue is huge. And that's what he means by stand firm. Stand firm insofar as you are a Christian in relationship, especially to the church and its relationship to the world, stand firm in this singular purity of devotion to the gospel Of Jesus Christ, let nothing and no other loyalty compromise that. Because it is the big Gahuna prize that we offer people. A real life of eternal flourishing. And only we can offer it in Jesus Christ. This is such a huge concept to Paul. If you were to do a word study on this Greek word, you'd find Paul uses it everywhere. I mean, 1 Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I, I kind of like that one. It's kind of sexist, I know. At least it sounds that way. I'm sure they didn't use the word there in that way. But, but I like it, because, not because it's sexist, because, or at least it sounds sexist in the English translation. It could be humans, I think. Um, I like it because oh, all the way through, you'll hear that this idea of stand firm has the connotation of courage. Of courage. A willingness not to go with the crowd. A willingness to be misunderstood. A willingness to be persecuted, to be the line. I mean, look at Paul, for God's sake. It seems like every religious faction in the world came down upon him. Well, heck, look at Jesus every religious faction in the world came upon him. There is this place, this sacred place that Paul is talking about for Christians to find themselves. To stand firm in the purity, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And and when there is a competing loyalty, that other loyalty loses every time. For the sake of the process. And he says it over and over and over again. Now, again, of particular interest in this passage is the way in which Paul relates this theme, standing firm in the purity of focus concerning the hope of the gospel, to the specific appeal then for peace. Peace concerning what? Christian unity. Again, this sentence explicitly recalls the exhortation to unity in Philippians 2, Verse 2, while it also echoes the language that Paul used earlier, quote, contending alongside of me in the cause of the gospel, end quote. These are two citations from earlier passages in Philippians that's going to begin to draw the link between purity and peace. This is the way Philippians said it. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Paul had already urged the community on the basis of his and their purity of devotion to Christ and the gospel to therefore complete my joy by setting your minds on the same thing. That same Greek word used here again. The relation of peace to purity is made explicit then in verse 127. I've read it again, but let me now read it again and you can hear it. He says, that I may hear of you that you are, quote, standing firm in one spirit with one hope, with one mind, striving side by side, what? For the faith of the gospel. In Paul's mind, unity, all those ones, standing firm together with one, 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 being one is necessarily related to preserving the mission or, the, or the, the faith of the gospel. And you're asking, I, I'm, I'm not following you. Heck, I'm not even sure I'm following myself right now. Because I know where I'm going. And if I didn't know where I was going, maybe I wouldn't. So let me try to illustrate this. Just anecdotally, what are some of the things that you hear people say that is a hindrance to their really, you know, becoming a Christian? I mean, there was a study done of that not long ago. And that study showed that right at the top two list, I mean, they're almost even related. You know, hypocrisy, disunity. It's very interesting that so many would see that. And yet, it's absolutely their right. You remember Jesus says this in 14 of John that, that God, in effect, has given the world permission to judge us and our authenticity, think about this, by virtue of our unity. John's great, you know, Christ's prayer in John 17, makes it, I mean, it's the last thing he prays for, at least that we know about. It's the last thing he prayed for. Lord, make them one, as even as we are one, that the world might not. You see, this is really curious, and I'm afraid that some of us have not put the dots together. And that's why it's so easy, it seems, sometimes to to have factions and divisions and and these sorts of things, and not to work and to study and and to do everything possible and being willing to eliminate anything. I mean, think about how important this is becoming now, if you're following this sermon. I mean, really? The world has the right to judge our authenticity? Really? Really? This is the very last thing that Jesus prayed. He prayed, protect them, keep them, and make them one even as we are one. Keep them in the purity of devotion to Christ in effect. Keep them in Christ, in me, in you. Keep them pure in me. And make them one. So anecdotally, uh, the great Leslie Newbigin, who is the father of what many call the missional ecclesiology movement, of which certainly we're part of that here with our whole uh, Anabano and Total Christ and all of that stuff. You know, he, he, he made the observation in India how, how ridiculous it became. You know, in Christendom, it, it feels right that you'd have all these different groups and sects, etc. But, but you'd go to India at the time and you proclaim this to be the universal Lord, Lord of all. And then when you become a Christian, everyone calls themselves something else. You know, I'm a Christian Presbyterian, I'm a Christian Baptist, I'm a Christian this. Now, I'm not here slamming denominationalism because, ironically, there's a, you know, it was meant to be a, a way to maintain Christian pure uh, unity. That's why we, for instance, here, denominationalism, which doesn't pronounce other denominations as outside of the church or unbelievers, we always open this table and say this is for all Christians of every denomination. We share, at least at this level, sacramental union, unity this side of heaven, even if we don't, for instance, share a unity of polity. as to the best way to govern from Scripture or something like that. So, so don't be quite too judgmental yet on, on denominationalism, though at the end of the day, it's just that at the heart of denominationalism is our own fallible sinful manners that have probably if you look at den- history of denomination has imported a lot of statism and a lot of other identities which Paul was talking about actually so we got to be a little more nuanced in our critique is all I'm saying but, but not that that's the point let's move forward I want you to see this impassioned plea for unity therefore he says I entreat Judea and, and Syntyche to agree in the Lord Now that word to agree is translated the Greek word that over earlier was to be of one mind. Yes, I ask you also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The second appeal is directed specifically to two and named women. Udea and Syntyche. Paul calls these two women out i mean this is remarkable in my own memory i didn't actually study it but but all the commentators are going ballistic about it i can tell you that but in my own memory i can't think of a time paul does that except i think in timothy i may be wrong but it's very rare in a letter like this very rare To specifically name names, two persons in a letter that would have been read to the whole congregation at large even? And again, this is remarkable. And especially in a conflict context. You know, maybe we don't appreciate that. In a media-saturated world like ours, where naming people publicly has really become a way of life, It's hard for us to to get how extraordinary this is. And Paul himself would know that it ought to be, which is why every one of us who are studying this passage have to go deeper and say, well, wow, what's happening here? What's the significance of these two women? And what's the nature of the unity that Paul seeks here? Those are the two questions that I want us to look at real briefly here. First of all, they were almost certainly key leaders. In fact, high-profile leaders. And we know that pretty clearly here in two ways. First of all, notice that he doesn't call them, quote, the dogs, or any of those names that he called people earlier who were not believers or who were of the Judaizing sect that might have been Christian believers but who were truly heretical, okay, or unorthodox in some of their beliefs. So, there's not anything like that here that relates to them. They are not spoken of in those terms, quite the contrary. They're spoken of in some pretty lofty terms. Terms that are ordinarily used to speak of those who are co laborers, colleagues of Paul, even in his apostolic ministry. For instance, he calls them fellow workers. I mean, you know what that means. Someone who's closely linked with another in some activity. He says that they labored with Paul side by side. To toil with someone in a struggle is the word there. It means that they suffered with them for the gospel. To labor, that word labor is really to toil, to, to struggle, to suffer. To imply opposition or competition. And therefore, that he had women co-workers in Philippi, well, should it surprise us? Since the church there had its origin among Gentile, from uh, uh, convert Gentile women, according to Acts 16, 13 through 15. Should it surprise us that these women co-workers in Philippi uh, were those, quote, God-fearers that we hear about in Acts 16? It's interesting that the evidence from Acts indicates that at her conversion, for instance, one of these co-laborers that's so-called in Acts, Lydia, became a patron, both of the small apostolic band and of the Christian community. And by the very nature of things, that meant she was also a leader in the church, since heads of households automatically assumed some kind of role of leadership in the early church when she was a head of household there, as it's described. Moreover, you think of the Macedonian women in general had much larger role in public life than one finds elsewhere in the empire. This area of Philippi especially in the, in the sort of Galilean area, it's, it's known for that. They were kind of radical that way. Other kid leaders mentioned in Scripture, Phoebe and others, of course, I won't do the sermon I've done before and you can go look it up if you'd like. It's strange though because... One of the things that happens in our culture and our culture wars and the way those kind of impact the church, uh, many good Orthodox theologians believe a real seismic change happened around the fundamentalist controversy in America, particularly the way we read Scripture uh, to be, you know, this idea of a a literal-only way of reading it, which was fairly not—I mean, it used to be a literary reading, not a literal— read it according to the genre, read it according to its context, read it according to with its redemptive thing. And, and so therefore we weren't reading, say, you know, revelations literally as if numbers meant literal things. We were reading them under apocalyptic genre kind of reading the way that we see the early church reading it. But when you get into culture wars, you get into these crazy funny things like slippery slope arguments, guilty by association arguments. And when you do that, you don't get clarity. You don't get nuance, and I suspect some of that's still very, very active in the life of our church. But all that just to say that that whatever you have heard or whatever context you have, uh, let you hear us say that we see in this text that there is a very high uh, value and purpose and leadership role for women in the Church of Jesus Christ. And especially back to this point, and that was just a side point, but to this point, which then begins to reshape the way you think about this, this what was the unity that was being issued here? What was going on? And why is it relevant? And so again, remember, this, this letter would have been read out loud to a congregation. And so to a, my second point, why do we see these as key leaders? Not only because we see explicit language that that affirms them that way but just think about it the letter would have been read aloud in a congregation it's it's to a pretty amazing credit then of both relating to the philippian community but also to these two women that that paul considered them mature enough to be able to handle this an unusual public admonition and evidently it must not have been taken or was it it wasn't of a personal nature you see, we read this, and we import all our psycho and therapeutic sort of uh, context here, and we automatically read into this, oh, there's a personality complex or, or, or content or something. Or we, we get into, here's some real nasty women or something. You know, That's not what's happening. We've got two amazing, highly decorated, if I may use that analogy, women, leaders of the church. Paul is calling them out. In the context of a public assembly, vicariously through a letter. It speaks volumes to their their maturity, but also to the point. The point is worth emphasizing, in other words, that because many readers tend to view then these two women in a negative light, like troublemakers in an otherwise model church, that most likely uh, that's not what we have here. This isn't a personal quarrel. But it raises then again the question, doesn't it? What is then the nature of their leadership? We don't know for certain. And I'm not going to here go into the controversies about offices and what offices and all that. We're not going to go there. That would get me way off course here. I can say with Christendom, though, that these women seemed to me to be the chief of the church which they were there. In other words, they had a significant role to the degree that, that they needed to get things reconciled or this church was going to fall apart. So then note, secondly, Paul invokes the help of an unnamed person. That's a now getting stranger. He doesn't name it. He just, he says, in, in, and he just names it. Just says in blank, or he doesn't say blank. I, what's the language there if you go back? It's, uh, to, uh, yeah, my true companion. But he doesn't say blank. And so what's what's interesting about that is is it evidently everyone else there knew who he was or she was, but but that's enough. Some have said it's probably... Uh, uh, maybe maybe it was the pastor. But here he's described more as an itinerant with Paul. So some have believed that it might even be Luke. We don't know. But he's saying, hey, what? What?" but the significant thing, which is all we need to know because it's all Scripture told us, is that he's, a, he's assigning a mediator. Isn't that cool? How do you deal with reconciliation issues? Matthew 18, try to deal with it in private, and if you can't, go find a uh, a member, uh, an elder, or, or, or you know, someone that you respect in the church and work it out between the three of you. Seems like he's calling upon that to happen. Even here mentioning Clement, which is, again, we don't know who this Clement is. And I won't go into all the speculations. He's a fellow yoke bearer, etc. So that gets me to my final question. What then is going on? I hope you're on your seat's edge. What was the problem? Well, again, have the same mind. Remember what I said about that word? How it was used earlier? Well, the clue would be to go see how he used it then. Because that would tell you what it is. And again, what we discover is it gets right to the vital connection between peace and purity of devotion. The problem here in this church is exactly what we've been hearing ever since we were in this letter. That people's devotions to the gospel had been compromised by other loyalties, by other passions, by other identities. This mindset where we're to set aside our identity after the bottle of Christ for the sake of the body of Christ. And so we have this amazing language where he, he describes in that context how those who were unwilling willing to do that, now this is key, because i want to use a quote here, those who are willing to set aside those other identities for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christian purity and peace in the church, for the sake of, therefore, a non-compromised witness to the world, those who are not to do that, he described their motives for doing it in chapter 2, and he says it again in Romans 16. It was their appetites. Their appetites for power, their appetites for fame, their appetites for money, It was their appetites. He calls it the appetites of their bellies. That's a pretty uh, way to say it. And so you're smart people. I think you know what we need to do with this, don't you? I mean, I think we know. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out where this is going when you think about the Church of Jesus Christ today. You know, there's many types of unity Certainly, we could describe uh, unity that's more personal in nature, what I'll call personal unity, one-on-one personality stuff, you know, things that we do with each other, etc. We now have dismissed that. That's not the problem here between these two women. You could say, (coughs) excuse me, it's a unity of confession. You know, people who have the same doctrines, and there is a biblical unity of confession. I don't think that's what's going on here. By the way, he's describing these women in the way it was described earlier. They're not the dogs. There's a unity of order. You know, you could have almost an identical confession of faith, but you'd have a very different understanding of how Christ shepherds the flock of God vis-a-vis an organizational structure. There's three main views on this. One is hierarchical, one's congregational, one's Councillor or counselor, if you will, elder by elders. We're in the middle, of course, if you know what Presbyterians are. Um, yeah, there's unity of confession, there's unity of order. Unity of confession is when you hold enough of a confession together that we can agree to disagree and continue in unity. Unity of order is we agree enough to where we can govern each other without chaos. Unity of sacrament, spiritual, if you will, mystical union, the kind of unity that, that we, we, we experience when we participate together in the, in the table every Sunday, because again, this is not a denominational table. And it's a unity, therefore, that gets at the very vitals of the gospel. We say, if you are a believer in some gospel believing church, you're welcome at this table. See, what we've said there is that we are one, sacramentally, and we partake together. You could be one more or less confessionally and sacramentally, but not one in your polity or order. I'm hoping you, I'm, I'm kind of expanding your brain, because the way I hear people talk about unity is a very trite way of talking about it. It's a lot more complicated, but beautiful and holistic, at least what we're working for. And then there's a, a unity of mission. And I believe that that, and by the way, these are five categories that have come down over the centuries, Uh, a a guy named John Owens in the 17th century uh, put these categories together and they've stuck throughout a lot of ecumenical discussions, and I'm using these categories by the way, they're not my own. A unity of mission. I think that's what's going on here. You have two very godly, wonderful women, and they just haven't quite ridded themselves of their Greekness or their Romanness. And we know that that was the issue already because it was said so. It's kind of like what was happening in Corinth. You remember when they said, some are saying I'm of Apollo, some are saying I'm of Paul, some are saying I'm, you know, what's going on there? Well, if you look in and dig in, you begin to see that there's real problems with things like eating foods and all of this other stuff. And it was all coming down to Hebrewisms and Greekisms and different ways of understanding these these things. And an unwillingness for either party to try to transcend their culture in a manner to understand Jesus Christ in those things. It's very interesting, the similarities here. And so what are they exhorted to do by way of repentance? They're, They're exhorted to be of one mind. Now that mind is not like you may understand. Uh, go take a test, and, and put the same words on a paper. Not a rationalistic uh, alone, at least mind. Mind is a much bigger, deeper word of one, of one way of thinking. You could say, of one almost it's, it's my soul. Be of one soul. I entreat you, I exhort you, to come together in effect, to lay aside all this other stuff that you have allowed to corrupt the purity of the devotion of Jesus Christ, and therefore, by consequence, has corrupted the peace of the church of Jesus Christ. And all of this is spoken in love. I want to end this, because so far, if you've heard what I've said and you hadn't read it carefully It would sound like Paul is really pissed off here. I mean, like he's angry, like he's just pounding and he's doing all this stuff. Listen to the incredible, affectionate way that Paul says this, which might give us an example of how we deal with conflict as well. He doesn't just say to those, you know, the beloved. That's a nice churchy way of saying it. He says... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. That's what he says. The most striking feature here is that these appeals are related directly to matters of affection. It's, it takes on an incredible personal nature. There's this remarkable elaboration where the ordinary brothers and sisters become my brothers and sisters, beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. Wow, does that change the way you hear this? This profusion of modifiers reminds us once again of this deep affection and feeling that Paul has for his church. And now I begin to get myself a little weepy. I did it today when I heard y'all sing Lamb of God. You know, just for a moment, can you possibly conceive of the preciousness of a church community? how incredibly precious it is. How horrible it is when that church is not unified. And when it becomes bitter and angry and resentful. When some faction or another faction by some sources are led to turn against each other. It's I mean, can we possibly, just for a moment, ask God to give us his heart on that? Can you imagine yourself as a parent watching your two children, not just bicker kind of cutely out in the playground, but I mean come to a divorce where they can't talk to each other, where they can't speak to each other without maligning each other? And then what you find on I don't know, I don't, they didn't have Facebook that day, but, but the social media of that day is all the barbs going at each other in passive-aggressive ways. Oh no, Jim Bob's not gonna say to, 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 to uh, Mark John, I gotta have a hyphen, um, you know, Mark John, you're a blank. He's just gonna attack everything Mark John is passionate about behind, you know, in a passive way Make sure you co-opt a few words that John's Mark is known to use in that little thing, and just sting the hell out of them. That's what that's what it's going to look like. Or maybe slandering. Can you imagine your your parent? I'm watching my little Stephen and Nathan and Anna do this to each other. Who's your kids? It would make you sick. You know Charles Hodge. I was fortunate to take a course here, and and um, his brother was. I mean, uh, his brother, I should say, wrote a biography of him, and it was the first biography to come out. Uh, Charles Hodge was a great theologian in the 19th century, and um, and a. a Hodge wrote this this biography of him, and it came down very quickly that he wrote it because he was trying to protect his father. And he was trying to protect his father because his father had a nervous breakdown. And he had a nervous breakdown because he saw his church divided and fighting each other in the Civil War. You know, when we talk about these things and, and what they do to communities, I, my, my thesis, as some of you know, and I've published on it, was, was on the church divided in, in, in the border states. And there were some big issues in the Civil War, issues that needed to be contended. But there were pastors like Charles Hodge, like Stuart Robinson, like Jim McFeeders, and I can go on and on, who wept and cried and who did everything in their power to beg his congregation, no matter what the issue, not to start fighting each other. To find a way to debate, yes. But find a way to not do it and to compromise that. There is nothing nothing more precious to your God's heart than you. And you in unity with each other. Paul is saying this right in our face. My beloved ones, my crown, my joy. Let's just let that sink in a little bit. That these are not just academic issues when we so quickly throw things around. Do our barbs. I mean, there's a church of Jesus Christ in America. There's a church of Christ in the world. And I, we've got to remember, it breaks God's heart. I mean, I suspect there's different levels of disunity that breaks his heart at different levels. You know? But we can never get used to divisions. We can never ever say, well, that's just the way it is. Because it breaks our God's heart. And so, let me give the takeaway. Surely, after repeating this formal exhortation to stand firm and single-minded focus on the prize of the gospel, Paul immediately returns the issue of Christian unity for the sake of gospel mission. That this is the recurring theme in Philippians and all of Paul's writings illustrates the necessary correlation, and this is my point, between peace and and purity. You don't have one without the other. You just can't. John, again, I'm going to read. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, said Christ. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Purity which you have given to me, that they may be one. Peace even as we are one. Keep them unified around this single gospel passion. And the prize of the resurrection from the dead offered to the world. Keep your focus. Everything else we work out. But that keeps us together. I'm no longer in the world. Yes, our unity is founded not upon sympathies of this world. Paul says, keep your mind on the things above, which is seated in heaven, the right hand, not on things on earth. Our loyalty together is not founded upon things we share in this world. My ethnicity, my gender, my, my nationality, my just give it, give it all, you know. This, this position on legal matters, this, this position on social matters, whatever it is. They're all might be good and important positions, but it doesn't warrant the bars. It doesn't warrant anything that comes between the body of Christ, north or south, east or west, red or blue. It doesn't warrant anything like that. But they are in the world, he said. And he goes on to pray for them. And that's exactly opposite of what Paul said to the first Corinthians in chapter 6. He says, my brother, it can't be. For brother goes to law against a brother. Brother. And that before unbelievers. That, that right there is a sermon. But if you've listened to this sermon, you hear what he's saying. You have allowed, you've allowed yourselves to, te- because of these temporal realities, to start fighting each other. And the whole world's watching you and laughing at you, mimicking you, saying, well, you're all right, one Lord. Ha. Jesus is a farce, because you're fighting each other right in front of the world. How horrible is that, Paul says. I can't believe you're doing it. You Christians fighting each other in front of the world. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of Jesus Christ, that all of you have the same mind, that word, in Corinthians. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. There's that word again. He seems to like this word a little bit, doesn't he? And of the same judgment. So let me just ask you, in closing, a couple of just quickly questions. What are some of the ways that we can be more intentional about pursuing Christian peace for the sake of the gospel in our relationships? Why don't you ask that question uh, with God's grace as we meditate about that. Are there any earthly loyalties and affairs that, like Paul, you just need to lay aside for the sake of this relationship? Are there some restrictions you can put yourself on in the media? in the social media because of this relationship? What are the right and wrong ways to pursue purity as to not undermine unity? Is purity done? Again, we had an exceptional situation here, but, but remember Matthew 18. It's serious. One-on-one and you stay there. And even if you ask prayer, you don't divulge the other person's situation because that would be then to... Divide them against that other person. And there it goes like gangrene, Paul said. You don't hear rumors. You say, no, I don't want to hear a rumor. I don't want to hear anything bad about someone unless I'm in a position to go mediate it. And that's the only reason I'm in context I'll ever hear it. But otherwise, I'm not going to hear it. I don't need to hear that. Needed no basis. There's lots of things that could be said about that second question. What are the right and wrong ways to pursue purity as to not undermine unity? And finally... Speaking to you personally, is there someone, especially a Christian or a Christian community that you need to reconcile with, that you need to go and say, look, whatever our issues, they're not bigger than the prize. They're not bigger than the gospel. Forgive me, because I made them too big. Is there anyone like that? And finally, if you're not a Christian, you have the right. Jesus gave you the right to judge the church by their loved one for another. Let me just tell you, uh, we have failed a lot as a church in this area. And we continue to fail. And I think what I hope that you'll consider is that you could come and help us, uh, even as we unify around this table, to do better. But I hope and pray that this side of heaven and our, and our fallibilities and our inabilities Hear Christ. Be attracted to this beatific vision that he had. Because it is the beatific vision that Paul and all true Christians are are praying for. It's a vision that will be true in heaven. There will be oneness. Everything you heard in Ezekiel, the nations coming together under one Lord. It's going to happen. That's my hope and that's yours. Let's pray.